Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Today, we are welcoming part two of the Dr. Michael Twyman series, who is a board-certified cardiologist. He focuses on prevention and early detection of heart disease, which is one of the biggest killers to date. Again, Dr. Twyman is an incredible physician. He takes an integrative functional medicine approach, uses all kinds of things like quantum medicine and even, quote, biohacking to get to the root cause of a patient's cardiovascular issues. What is really important about Dr. Twyman is he is very well-trained. He is not a pseudo-expert. He is a board-certified cardiologist with a lot of experience, including uh, four years as an internist at the Naval Hospital in Beaufort, which means he has a lot of clinical knowledge and experience. Hope you love this episode as much as I do. Please share this episode with your friends, anyone you know who has a family history of cardiovascular disease, who is at risk for cardiovascular disease, rate, subscribe, share. My wish for you is that you hear a very transparent conversation that allows you to take health and wellness into your own hands. I cannot stress the importance of making sure you have optimal levels of omega-3 essential fatty acids in your diet. In fact, it is one of the things that we test for in blood work is to actually check your ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids. This is why I recommend Full Mega. It is formulated with very specific amounts of EPA and DHA from fresh, cold water, wild-caught, Icelandic fish. We do not get what we need in our diets. In fact, as I'm, I'm working on my first book, this is one of the products that I highlight because omega-3 fatty acids are essential for not only heart function, brain function, inflammation, everything. We don't get enough. Check out Full Mega. This needs to be a supplement that you take. You can go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lyon, free shipping. The best customer service you've ever had. Check it out. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that is BetterHelp. You've heard that correctly. That's betterhelp.com. Now listen, this is online therapy, but a lot of people don't want online therapy. Okay, I get it. However, what you want and what you need are perhaps two different things. I think always being able to talk to someone is really, really important. And we all have these experiences that stress us out. And even if you feel like you don't need a therapist, you probably need someone other than your friends and family to talk to. This is why I recommend BetterHelp. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lyon. This is a much more affordable way to manage your internal dialogue. And uh, my listeners get 10% off their first month. You don't have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. You'll be matched with a therapist and under... 48 hours. Again, if you are shy about therapy, don't think about this as therapy, but think about this as a mental workout and uh, making sure that you get what you need. So give it a shot, risk-free, 10% off. Uh, let me know what you think. And you use a handful. So in your toolbox of what you utilize, 
I know because we share patients, you use uh, fish oil, you use bergamot, you use um, berberine. berberine. Can you walk me through some of the indications for what you use these things, how you use them, who would you use them in? And also, not just supplementation, but uh, statin use, which people seem to be very extreme, either no, no, it's good or absolutely not. Sure. Uh, also, aspirin, a daily dose of aspirin, fish oil. I don't know. Have you ever used SPMs? Have you ever heard of those? Okay, SPMs. Um, we use a, a lot in the military for inflammation, but it, it's an intermediate, so we'll kind of shelf that one. But yeah, I'd love to hear some of the, the supplementation. You can use sure. garlic. Use aged garlic. Sure, sure. use garlic. So you know, first support healthy nitric oxide levels and you know, remove the things that are breaking that you know body's ability to make that so remove the listerine remove the you know the acid blocking medicines if you can you know there are supplements you know if you want me to name them i can name them but you know, you know there's one called neo 40 there's a newer one called no2u both those are oral lozenges what is help. what is i mean that's interesting yeah, they, what they, is a neo 40 there's um it's concentrated beetroot and there's some other um, hawthorn um, and vitamin C that all help augment nitric oxide production. Should everybody be taking that? Athletes too, perhaps? A lot of athletes do take it because it can help with exercise performance. I mean, if you can you know, get more blood flow to the muscles and get toxins away, you tend to do better. Does that so, help um, erectile dysfunction? Possibly, yeah. I definitely recommend it for patients to try before they you know, say that they're going to because it actually can get to the root cause. It's making more nitric oxide versus not saying people shouldn't use Viagra, but you know, Viagra is somewhat like a Band-Aid. It doesn't you know, get better. You just have to continue to use it. So using medicine or supplements, I should say, like Neo40 or the, it's kind of a newer agent called NO2U, both formulated by the same gentleman, Dr. Nathan Bryan. Now, I use that frequently in patients who have evidence of endothelial dysfunction or high blood pressure. There's a product called Arterosil, which helps support the endothelial glycocalyx, which is the gel coat that lies on top of the um, the endothelium. And if you keep the healthy glycocalyx, nothing sticking to the arteries. You're not likely to continue to add plaque to the arteries. So you're just this, would a supplement actually impact that? You know, sometimes, you know, uh, things work really well in uh, theory, but don't necessarily translate. Uh, I, I know that you're- Both prepared. of them have human trials and uh, you know data on plaque regression, plaque stabilization, um, and both have you know very good safety profiles. So there are some supplements I can get behind. You know, there's it's always a risk benefit of anything you put into your system, right. and very low risk for either of these ones. Then you know the inflammatory story. You know you got to figure out what's causing the inflammation, but frequently use high dose omega threes. The EPA's a little bit more important for the arterial health, the DHA. How high do you go? Depends on the um, indication, but sometimes as high as you know, two grams twice a day. Um, Which I think is, that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. That's combined a reasonable EPA and DHA. You know, the DHA is more important for brain health and um, neurovascular health. Um, and then curcumin or turmeric, you know, that is extremely anti-inflammatory. It lowers NF-kappa beta, lowers inflammation, works really good in combination with omega-3. That's kind of like standard bearer for, you know, if you have a high sense of CRP that's high. But side note on it is, you know, back to the, you know, the sunlight and such, this is where earthing and grounding comes into. So, you know, we have sweat glands on our hands and feet because we're supposed to be connected to the earth. So when we're not connected to the earth, you know, we're like a dissipating battery. So wait, why do we have sweat glands on our hands and so feet? So you can connect better to the earth. I see. Yeah. So, so when you're connected to the earth barefoot, there's negative f electrons in the earth that your feet accept. That's very anti-inflammatory of the system. One way to think about inflammation is it's too much positive charge, too many protons, 
not enough electrons, negative charge. So standing barefoot on the beach is anti-inflammatory. So you can lower CRP by doing that. How much? Sicker you are, more. But again, something 20 minutes a day. So if you're already outside watching the sunrise, just do it barefoot and stand in your yard. And naked. Naked be, yeah. I have a standing uh, offer for any patient that gets arrested <laughs> because of my recommendations, I will bail out the first person. <laughs> um, so that's the information. What is that guy doing? Oh, yeah. don't worry about yeah. him. That's yeah. uh, Dr. Mike Twyman's yeah, patient. He is barefoot, naked, and uh, without sunscreen. Yeah, charging up his mitochondrial <laughs> batteries. Don't worry about it. Doing push-ups to ground both hands yeah. and feet. Yes, sweaty hands and feet. <laughs> So yeah, that's the inflammation story. And then, okay, now it's the plaque. Okay, what can you do to help stabilize the plaque? So vitamin K2, MK7 is an important one. How do people get that in their diet? And foodstuffs, it's hard. It's in some cheeses. It's in uh, uh, these <laughs> natto, which is- I was hoping you were going to say yeah, that. Yeah. It's, Has it's, anyone ever had natto? Uh, Stefan, have you ever it, had yeah. natto? Stefan's yeah. our producer. Does he like it? Stefan, you like it? <laughs> He just turned green, almost threw yeah. up. Yeah, most people aren't going to get enough from their diet per se. Yeah, but, again, you yeah. know, it's important to point out, we don't necessarily know the dosing. For example, protein, carbohydrates, fats, we can kind of sense the dosing. But now when we think about the food matrix, we have no idea. Right. And so vitamin K2 is important for calcium metabolism. So and where know, do they get that? Oh, you said that so, that was in the... Yeah, and the cheeses and the, the natto types up, but there are supplements of K2. So basically think of, you know, calcium is something that gets you know absorbed from your gut based off of you know your vitamin D status, but also your vitamin K2. You want your calcium to stay in your bones and teeth. You don't want it to be building up in your arteries right. and kidney stones. Right. So K2 helps keep it where it's supposed to go. There's also chyloic aged garlic has been shown to help progress and stabilize There's actually plaque. some good studies on that. I was uh, surprised. I have um, one patient who really, really struggled with some of these cardio... You've actually seen him struggled with the cardiovascular markers and hypertension. And yeah, it helps with high blood pressure. It helps with preventing the LDL from oxidizing. Shout out you know, to Todd. Yeah, one of the theories is that it's the, the sulfate groups that are in the garlic that are being donated to that endothelial glycocalyx. So it's supporting that healthy gel coat. You keep the gel coat healthy, things don't stick there. But it helps also stabilize that soft plaque. So plaque is you know pretty ubiquitous. You know, If you live long enough, you're going to have plaque in your arteries, but you're not necessarily gonna have events. You're not necessarily gonna have to have a heart attack or stroke. But there are things you can do to help stabilize that plaque. So think of it as a, you know, a red hot pimple that's ready to blow, or is it you know a dormant volcano that has a really thick cap over it? The K2 can help keep a thick cap over it, and you know you can live your whole life and nothing happens then. So those are kind of the the main ones. And then getting into like the, the pharmacological agents. Well, what about know, berberine bergamot? Oh, sure, that, that's more of kind of the, the the lipid story. So, um, so for patients. And we'll, we'll talk about statins in just a moment, but for people who maybe aren't as high risk or maybe they you know, aren't tolerating certain pharmacologic agents, you know, the supplements that can tend to affect the lipids, you have to first kind of think about like, where do you actually want to affect the lipids at? Is it more of an issue with the liver is pumping out too many of these lipoproteins? So too many of these tennis balls are coming out of the liver. That's very common. You can test a blood test that looks at that. So a company Boston Heart does a panel, the cholesterol balance test that says that, you know, it's a hyperproduction issue. So you're making too many, you know, cargo ships. So there's places that you can do to help lower that. That's where bergamot will come in. Bergamot is a citrus uh, fruit. It's what's in Earl Grey tea. But bergamot at the right dose, which is usually, you know, above a thousand milligrams or so a day, it actually inhibits HMG-CoA reductase. That's the same enzyme that the statins work on. It's not as potent as a statin, but it doesn't have the same side effects as the statin. So bergamot would make you make less of these lipoproteins. Now, the second lever that you could pull on is in more of an issue with 
does the liver have enough receptors to get the lipoproteins out of circulation? This is where the medications would work, would be the PCSK9 inhibitors, Repatha, Praliwent being the main two. So the LDL receptor stays out longer, more effectively clearing the blood. This is where the supplement berberine would have an effect. Berberine, for most people, they're going to think about it as kind of like an alternative to metformin, right. which is, helps with glucose, you know, insulin sensitivity, insulin yeah. sensitivity. Um, but it's a weak oral PCSK9 inhibitor. So it can have a little bit of an effect of keeping that LDR receptor out longer. So uh, someone who would be uh, an indication for an individual who would be on a PSK9 would be LDL cholesterol that they cannot move. Is that correct? Or is there a different number that or to be ApoB, someone can't move down? So the PCSK9 story is interesting because it was uh, discovered through um, you know, GWAT analysis. So they look at all these genes to figure out like, okay, who lives longer? And people who had a certain issue with this PCSK9 where it was inhibited, these people had longevity because essentially the elder receptor, think of it as like a catcher's mitt. If that catcher's mitt just stays out all day long, clearing the blood, those ApoB particles aren't going to your artery walls. So there's certain families that just don't have an enzyme that gets rid of it. So when PCSK9 enzyme is elevated, it makes this little catcher's mitt receptor go away. So there's this two- is a PSK9 inhibitor. The inhibitor. So the injectable medications mm. keep that enzyme low so that receptor stays out longer to clear the blood more effectively. Mm. Then once the lipoprotein gets into the liver, it breaks down into its components, put it into the bile, the person puts it into their intestine, and they're supposed to get rid of it. But in some people, there's basically a bouncer that opens up the door and says, this stuff's still good, sends it back through the portal circulation, sends it back to the liver, and now it's going around the circuit again. So those are the people that azetamide or zetia, was it what it used to be known as, that blocks that gate and keeps it closed. So right now, there's not really a supplement that will keep the gate closed. So if you have that issue and Again, it can be seen on the Boston Heart Test that they're a hyperabsorber of sterols. If they're a hyperabsorber, Zetia is probably the better option for that person. And base uh, those kinds of specialty testing would allow an individual to see where the deficit is, whether an individual is taking too much or making too much, not um, disposing of enough, right? There's, there's ways in which you can then target therapy. Correct. And you know, back to your question, like who should be on a PCSK9? Those are going to be the people, for the most part, who have FAH familial hyperlipidemia. So they've had high Run, lipids. Runs since, in their family. Yeah, runs in the family and they've had high lipids and they've, you know, been a, you know, a teenager. So would you treat them as a teenager? Yes. If I had access to them. And that's the thing is that like, you know, I'm quote a preventive cardiologist, but most people aren't going to come see me until they're probably in their thirties or forties. We should probably have preventive Gosh, cardiologists. So like, ancient. Yeah, ancient. They should be like preventive pediatric <laughs> cardiologists. Yeah. But they're it's just probably not, true, it's but it it's would common. be yeah. It would be challenging with the medication type Correct. So, yeah. conversation. But if I can get somebody at 18 who had this type of pattern, you could prevent them from ending up like their dad who had a heart attack at 48 oh, years old or something right. like that. So so those people are the main people that benefit. And then the other people are going to be people who are already kind of like the, the medical train wrecks. They've already had 10 stents. They've already had bypass surgery. And they're already in maximally tolerated stands and their numbers aren't budging. This is kind of going to be kind of like a good option to add on to a maximally tolerated stand at that point. Now, what about aspirin? Aspirin's complicated in ways, but aspirin works by, you know, inhibiting the platelets from sticking together. So the platelets, so when you get cut. What's yeah. the current recommendation for aspirin? It varies. <laughs> um, because, you know, you see all these news articles, you know, aspirin's poison for everybody. Nobody should take it. Right. Like, okay. So we'll start with secondary prevention first. 
So the people who've already had events, you have hardware in so you. Primary you prevention yeah. is. Yeah, primary prevention. There's actually another, <laughs> but okay, let's just yeah. start with secondary. Secondary is you've had an event. You've had a heart attack, stroke, got a stent, bypass. You're asking for life unless you're allergic to the stuff. Now, primary prevention is you've never had an event. You know, who should be on aspirin? Okay, well, you want to put the people who have low risk of bleeding and good benefit of not having a stroke or heart attack on aspirin. Younger women tend to have more bleeding than benefit. So a younger woman probably shouldn't consider- What's a younger woman? Yeah. 30s, 40s? Yeah, 30s, 40s for the most part. But this is the story that if that person has an abnormal carotid scan, has an abnormal calcium score, they're a higher risk, even though they haven't yet classically been considered secondary prevention. They've not had an event, but they have demonstrated plaque in their arteries. The guidelines don't necessarily address that. So you have to kind of risk stratify them, say like they're probably higher risk than the most the calculators can say. That person probably benefits more from aspirin unless they're allergic or high risk of bleeding. 81 milligrams. 81 milligrams for almost everybody for prevention standpoints. Higher doses like the 325, the you know, the full dose aspirin, that's more useful for like acute stroke or you know, somebody just has a fresh stent placed, you may use higher dose aspirin. But for the walking person in the public, usually it's 81 milligrams. It gives you the same benefit. Even though they haven't had any kind of issue. Possibly. But like I said, it's not something that aspirin should be for everybody. You know. Show me that you have atherosclerosis, you're likely to benefit. You know, How does aspirin actually help somebody? Well, it prevents the platelets from sticking together. When somebody has a heart attack, and maybe we'll take a second to explain what a heart attack actually is, is that you've had you know, these plaques building up in your arteries for years. You know, They're like little volcanoes or pimples building up. You may have no symptoms at this point because they're not very severe. There's like a 30 or 40% blockage in your artery. You can't feel it. But this little plaque ruptures because it's inflamed. Now all that damaged cholesterol and cellular debris spills out into your bloodstream. The body thinks it's bleeding to death to the outside. The body starts recruiting platelets and fibrin to form a clot there. So you stop the, quote, bleeding from this little plaque rupture, but that then acts as a dam. No oxygen nutrients are going past that blockage. So if it's in your heart, that's a heart attack. If it's in your brain, it's a stroke. So it's an acute process. You went from a 30% blockage to 100% blockage. Now I got a big problem. So aspirin prevents those platelets from clumping together. So that can help somebody potentially not have a 100% blockage with one of those things happens. And you know, maybe they have a 95% blockage and enough blood flow gets through there that they don't have as big of a heart attack. Aspirin, who's this, who is it for? Who's it not for? Uh, obviously, if the risks outweigh the benefits, if they are going to uh, be at a risk for bleeding, or also, what about a risk for falls? Elderly patients who, I mean, that that's tricky, right? It's very tricky. How do you risk stratify? It's the you know what is your estimated risk of you know having a cardiac event versus you know their fall risk, and you know definitely that was a case that I would see. You know, I I know you trained in geriatrics. I you know did many many months of geriatrics at St. Louis University, and you know patients who are a fall risk, you know probably should not be on, you know, antiplatelet agents, shouldn't be on anticoagulation. It's tricky people, though, because really typically- tricky. Those uh, are the people at risk for the those events. Are, exactly, <laughs> those are the people that are at risk for the events. Um, you mentioned genes. Correct. Uh, which I'm gonna do that, and I'm not talking about the size two, we're talking about the <laughs> gene, the gene testing to see actually where everything lies. What, tell me, tell me about that. I've never done this test. Yeah, so there's kind of two big gene panels that I'm starting to do more and more in patients. One is from a company called GB Insight, and they do a very comprehensive panel that looks at all your lipid um, metabolism 
genes. It also looks at certain things that affect nitric oxide production. Uh, there's also some of the methylation pathways in there. So that panel is really excellent for people who, you know, have had issues with, let's say, stands. You know, they've had the myosin stands. So it will check the SLCO1B gene and tell you, are you a, you know, basically a slow metabolizer of stands and maybe doesn't tell you you're allergic to them, but you're not going to tolerate high doses of the fat-soluble ones. Because so they'll get myalgia or They'll get the why? muscle pains with it then because, the, you know, when they take a 10 milligram dose, it's like 80 milligrams to their body. So you just have to use lower dose, maybe intermittently dose it or- Do we have that for all medication? I mean, that would make sense for almost all medications. It would. But they don't have, I mean, I know that's pharmacogenomics and that's what's mm -hmm. coming, but you know, at least for the stands, they have one. It's called SLC01B1. Um, and then there's another company, Vibrant America, that does the Cardia X panel. And that has 20 or 30 different SNPs that look at, some of them overlap, you know, that are a little bit lipid related, but a lot of them are hypertension related. And so sometimes, you know, you have patients who are very, um, resistant to certain medications, meaning that, you know, they're on two, three medicines and yeah. blood pressure is not controlled. This will actually tell you, you know, uh, you know, which medicine is almost like the silver bullet for this person. Sometimes it's amiloride. Sometimes it's spironolactone. It tells you for the most part, That's which medicine you should helpful. use. Yeah. Different. Have you ever used the genomine um, for psychiatric medications? Mm -hmm. For psychiatric, med I, I did psychiatry for two years at the University of Louisville and, and we didn't do it then, but I did in my own, in, you know, in my practice, we look at medications and how individuals metabolize it, but it doesn't necessarily just talks about pe people being more at risk for side effects, whether it's tardive dyskinesia or, or something, but it doesn't actually say anything about dosing. Uh, maybe a little, but you know, I didn't find it incredibly useful, but it sounds as if, as it relates to the cardiovascular aspect, people are getting better. So you could tell me if I would benefit from an aspirin, Correct. Essentially. Yeah. And that one comes down to the, the COMT uh, uh, SNP. So COMT um, has an effect on your dopamine, your norepinephrine levels. And people have an abnormal SNP, it may affect their blood pressure because you know their adrenaline levels are higher than should be. So those are the people that probably should be better at you know, meditating and finding ways to deal with their stress because they're going to be usually running higher than other people. But the COMT people have an effect you know, with aspirin, certain of those genes, they tend to benefit. The other ones don't tend to benefit. So you can get a little bit more granular on uh, who you treat with aspirin or not. But definitely aspirin should not be in the water for everybody, but for the right individual, you know, if they have- So our statins like, really in our water? Not that I know about. <laughs> that, that's why I filter my water. No. <laughs> um, what about caffeine and cardiovascular health? That's a great question. So um, that cardiac profile, will check it. It's called C. CYP1A2, and that's a gene that determines if you're a fast or slow metabolizer of caffeine. And 60% of people are slow metabolizers of caffeine. So when they drink you know, coffee, tea, soda, hopefully nobody's still drinking a lot of soda, but if you're drinking caffeine, it's going to stick around in your system longer. And caffeine, you know, obviously it can be used as a stimulant to you know keep you awake and do what you need to do but it can also constrict the you know the, the arteries so when it constricts the arteries it's going to raise blood pressure so usually recommend people you know who are slow metabolizers doesn't tell them that they have to go to zero but if they have you know uncontrollable high blood pressure or other issues yeah they need to go completely caffeine free would they feel it they may feel it so that the, the more fascinating is like if you don't have the test you know could you pound a mountain dew and go to bed if you can you're probably you know, a fast metabolizer. And 
you know, for years I could do that and got the test. And yeah, it was a fast metabolizer, but the slow metabolizers, they just need to be careful. They probably should only have caffeine early in the morning. They so need they, it. They, they, I need it. They need it. But caffeine affects the adenosine receptor. So as your body's making energy throughout the day, ATP, you know, the adenosine builds up as a byproduct. So I tell patients it's kind of like an hourglass. That adenosine builds up in the hourglass, and when it gets high enough, there's enough pressure to make you go to sleep. Caffeine just blocks that, and it you know keeps you alert for a while. But behind that dam, the adenosine builds up, and when the caffeine wears off, it's not that you had caffeine withdrawal. It's just that adenosine sleep pressure is so high, you're going to sleep then. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that sounds like a great strategy. <laughs> um, just kidding, kids. Don't try this at home. But I, I use caffeine. I love caffeine. I drink it in the morning, and I may even drink it mid or you know early, maybe noon. Or sometimes if I have to go really late, I'll push it to one, You know, work really late. Um, do you drink caffeine? I do, but I, only in the morning time. And yeah. how is there a milligram amount that you say, okay, this is cardiotoxic? <laughs> yeah, I know we share some people who were probably uh, definitely toxic on it. Um, you know, Every I've, single you know, operator right, yeah. ever. Yeah. I don't know what the highest dose I've ever seen. I think somebody who's like well over 2,000 milligrams. I was like, okay, that is like instant supraventricular tachycardia for most people. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, 200 milligrams a day or so is, you know, okay for the majority of people. But it's again, a test don't guess philosophy. You're wearing a wearable. You know, there's different sleep wearables that people can utilize. How much does it affect your deep sleep? How much does it affect your REM sleep? You know, if your sleep's off, you know, remove the stimulants that are affecting the sleep. Now, there's times and places, you know, in the operator show, you got to be alert and yeah. do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. But from a longevity standpoint, if it's breaking your sleep, it's breaking your mitochondria. So if you want and if longevity- it's breaking your sleep, you're at a higher risk for Alzheimer's, actually, and right. weight issues. For sure, for sure. Sleep apnea and heart disease. Extremely prevalent, under-tested. Yeah. Electrolytes are not just important for skeletal muscle, but they're also important for cardiac function. Again, making sure that you're in proper electrolyte balance is very valuable. Check out Element, L-M-N-T. And uh, this is an electrolyte solution, very easy to travel with. It contains science-backed electrolytes as it relates to its ratio. It has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, no BS, no sugar, nothing artificial. You can go to a drink element.com slash Dr. Lion. If you don't like it, you'll get a full refund. And also if you order drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion, you will get free eight single serving packs. Great product. I think that you'll really love it. Let me know what you think. Cardiovascular disease is, you know, while they talk about it as a silent disease, there are early biomarkers that oftentimes people can see in your blood if you have certain risk factors. And that's why making sure you look at what's under the hood is so valuable. Go check out insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You'll get 20% off. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You really should know your ApoB. You should know your LP little a. You should know what your cholesterol looks like, what your triglycerides look like. The only way to do this is to test it again Check out insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Very important. Very important to at least do one time so you get a baseline understanding of blood markers that can affect your heart. AFib hypertension can all be related to sleep apnea. 
Correct. You and I both test sleep apnea in nearly everybody. And people think that sleep apnea, it just relates to being overweight. Every single athlete, there may be a handful that do not have sleep apnea. Every single fit individual, fit guy with a big neck has it. For sure. And it's one of those ones where, you know, the, the classic, you know, snores like a freight train, you know, wakes up with headaches, dry mouth. Okay, those are slam dunks. Those are easy ones. But the person who has like, you know, heart rhythm issues that you don't know why they came out of the blue, they have blood pressure that's not well controlled, you know, or, you know, in your line, you know, they're, you know, rock bottom testosterone. Okay, well, they're probably not sleeping well. So do a sleep study and figure out do they have apnea or not. When you're apneic, you know, you're hypoxic, you don't have enough oxygen. You don't have oxygen, you don't make energy in the mitochondria. And also during the apnea spells, there's all this intrathoracic pressure pressing on your heart. The heart basically thinks like it's getting stepped on, so the heart's gonna release different hormones that then increase pressures to open itself back up. And that's gonna lead up to, you know, nocturnal blood pressure issues. So in our practice, you know, we routinely screen people for sleep apnea, but people have uncontrolled high blood pressure, there's devices called the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor that measures your blood pressure throughout the day. But we can see what is their blood pressure while they're sleeping. Your blood pressure normally goes down when you sleep. If your blood pressure is staying steady or going up, that's a big red flag. You probably have sleep apnea. Boy, my patients are like, oh my God, now, now I got to do this one. What about testosterone therapy and cardiovascular health? It's a great topic. I mean, it's definitely, you know, shown that if you have low, you know, testosterone, you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. But the the, the corollary of taking TRT and getting your levels back up to normal levels, does that really reduce risk? That's a little bit more nuanced to say. Um, but we also know people who super therapeutically use testosterone. And that's where it comes into an uh, an issue from a cardiovascular standpoint is because the testosterone ramps up red blood cell production out of your bone marrow. And then, you know, your red blood cells become like ketchup in your bloodstream. Then your blood becomes very sticky and viscous and it's going to increase blood pressure. So there's increased risk of stroke if you're super physiologic on your testosterone for too long. And that's, and you're really talking about abuse. Um, and there's ways that you can measure that with hemoglobin hematocrit, uh, although even at altitude, those numbers can be higher. So what Dr. Mike is saying is over a period of time of abuse in conjunction with likely often elevated blood pressure. What about red light therapy and mitochondria? Because I, I, I want to tell everybody, when I went to your office, I've been to your office a few times. I've not been to your new office, which I'm very excited to go in November when I, I go to Women in Business to see my uh, good friend, Emily Frisella. Can't wait. If you guys don't know what Women in Business is, you should check that out. Dr. Mike had mitochondria cufflinks on. I mean, that's like a whole nother level of science yes. right there. Definitely deep nerding. Um, that's, yeah, that is like the, new, the, the next frontier yes. of nerd sauce. Yes. Red light therapy, and I know that you have just installed a huge panel, three times the size of myself. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's not saying much because I'm really short, but. Yeah, tell me about red light. I mean, it is all the rage. I actually use red light therapy. I use multiple red lights. Yeah, You it, don't have a wrinkle on your face, and I know you're not utilizing skincare. Yeah, I don't put any products on my face. Um, but Probably not a lot of filler either. No fillers, no fillers. Uh, so photobiomodulation is the uh, 
the scientific term for it now. So you can call it red light therapy, but there's other wavelengths of light as well. So this used to be known as low-level light therapy or low-level laser therapy. It was first really kind of discovered in the late 60s. It was almost by accident. So there's a gentleman doing some research on rats. He did some type of procedure on them and was trying to see was the red light therapy causing cancers in these animals. The ones that he used the red light therapy on actually grew back their fur quicker. So hair growth is one of the major benefits. And it's FDA approved therapy. now, actually. Definitely it's, FDA, it's FDA approved, approved for that. So that's how they first discovered it. It's mm. much like most things in science. A lot of times it's a happy accident. So red light therapy, one of its major functions is on the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are the organelles in your cells. They do many things, but they make energy for the cells. And the mitochondria are mostly in your energy-dense organs. So your brain, your heart, your muscles. So your where cufflinks. Do, yeah, my cufflinks. So where do most of chronic diseases end up? It's your heart and brain. Think of it as like a brownout, you know, from energy standpoint. If your mitochondria aren't making enough energy, you don't have enough energy to keep all the lights on. And then Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, neurodegeneration shows up. Obesity is in part a mitochondrial issue. The mitochondria aren't effectively burning fat for energy. Then, what I'm hearing you say yeah. is to leverage skeletal muscle to increase mitochondria. Correct. Think. Correct. Yes. It's all, it's all related. <laughs> it's all related. So the mitochondria have these different uh, cytochromes in them. I won't go too deep into it, but think of cytochromes as you know little uh, train stops. There's five of them. And you have to pass an electron down the road like hot potato. And at the end, this little thing spins around called the ATPase and energy comes out. The faster you can get the electrons to go through the system, the more energy comes out the other side. The red light therapy penetrates into the mitochondria and stimulates the fourth stop. On the fourth stop, back to our friend nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is really good in the arteries at helping dilate it, but nitric oxide inside the mitochondria acts as a break. The electrons then don't flow to the end where energy comes out. So there's times and places where your body shouldn't be making energy because as you make energy, you gotta breathe in oxygen, and you're combusting that food stuff in your mitochondria. There's going to be ROS. There's going to be you know smoke. Reactive oxygen yeah, reactive species. Yeah, species. So you're rusting from the inside out when you're doing this process, essentially. So this is where the, you know, the, the free radicals, the antioxidants. And the red in. light helps with this? Helps with that. So the red light kicks off nitric oxide from that fourth cytochrome. And then energy and flow. So it, penetra- it penetrates through the skin? Penetrates through the skin. Mm. So... This is why it's sometimes a little bit challenging with the red light therapy to say, you know, what dose are you getting? But how it works is that it gets into the mitochondria, it increases ATP, which is an energy currency, it increases nitric oxide because it kicks it off that four cytochrome, and then it short term increases reactive oxygen species, but then it basically genes get transcribed and then your body makes more antioxidants. And so they have all these downstream effects that, you know, are hours to weeks later from it. But the red light therapy is best skin contact for the most purpose. So, so again, that's Dr. Mike's naked patient yeah. standing outside in a front of a red light panel now. Correct. Correct. And how close? Li- six six so inches? That, that's why I said that it's complicated because light can do, you know, four things. It can, you know, the acronym is RATS. You know, it can reflect, it can get absorbed, it can transmit, it can scatter. So reflection. So when you're standing back from a red light, you can see that bouncing off your skin. It's like I think the number 63% of the light bounces off your skin. So the rest of it, some of it comes through. So, you know, if you put a red light right on your hand, you can see it coming out the other side. So that's going all the way through. But some of it's getting absorbed directly in the cytochromes. So how much? 
there's not a great way to measure that exactly yet clinically. So the good thing about red light therapy is that it's really hard to injure yourself with it, but to get the exact dose, it's sometimes complicated, especially with the consumer-facing devices, because some called the inverse square law. The further you're away from something, the less photons of energy are coming into you. So it's kind of the equivalent of like cooking something with a candlelight versus a blowtorch, you know, more heat energy, shorter period of treatment time. So most consumer panels say six inches almost by kind of like it's a myth because, you know, you would ideally want it to be skin contact, but most of them can't say skin contact because a lot of these devices But you have can feel it. Things. It gets, feels really hot when you- It gets really warm if you have a lot of- That's going to be more the near-infrared causing you to kind of oh, like okay, heat so up the from the inside out. So the devices, typically the devices that, you know, we all use have both They'll have red, red and, infrared. and infrared. So red's going to be usually 660 nanometers. The ones that, you know, and a lot of times it's funny, the patients say like, oh, like half the bulbs are burnt out. Like, no, the, the ones that you can't see, that's- uh, that's infrared. And so usually those are going to be in the 810 nanometers to maybe up to 850 nanometers. So the the near-infrared penetrates a little bit deeper, but that does tend to cause the water to kind of like vibrate in your cells a little bit more and you kind of heat up from the inside out. How long should someone stand in front of a red light? really depends on what they're treating. And so it's the- but What are the uh, conditions they treat? Muscle soreness. They say anti-aging. And is that because it actually does something great for the skin, reduces wrinkles? Does it, I mean, I don't know. I've had some patients say that they get sunspots from that. Is that possible? Not likely. Okay. Um, you know, again, blue light causes more sunspots and wrinkles than people really know. So, um, but- Not anymore. Kinda, Everybody yeah, knows yeah, this yeah. and they're gonna put a lot of sunscreen. Right. So the treatment time is going to vary by the condition getting treated. And it's kind of like cooking a turkey. Like, you know, can you drop it in oil and cook it in three seconds? You can, or you can cook it for six hours. So it sort of depends on exactly what the tissue is being treated. But yes, musculoskeletal indications is the number one reason to use these type of panels. You know, there's over 6,000 published articles. There's over like three to 400 randomized trials and that's on in, musculoskeletal. That's, and that's in um, physical therapists use the, is it documented as red light therapy or low level? That is a big challenge because they use, there's probably like 20 different acronyms for it. Okay. So yes, they'll sometimes just call it low level laser therapy, right. low, low level Low light, level laser. So I'm just low curious, level light therapy, are we looking at the same thing? PBM. So that's sometimes the challenge is that when you go into the literature, they may be calling it something different. And then you have to really look at the, the parameters, you know, what is the wavelength that they're using? So that's basically the color. Is it red? Is it infrared? Is it a combination? You know, what is the power density? That's basically like how much energy is being pushed out of this device per, you know, squint uh, per centimeter. So it's, you know, the number's gonna be milliwatts per centimeter squared. So is it a pinpoint or do you have a huge eight foot long panel that treats your whole body all at once? It's different. And then the time is basically- you And know, what time of day? Uh, what time of day? That's a good one. That, for the most part, it should be daylight hours because that's when you would have normally been exposed to the red and infrared light. Now, there's some data that you probably don't want to be using it really close to bed because it can affect, because the intensity of light can, can affect melatonin and can affect your sleep. But for the most part, the red light therapy can be done any time of day, but I usually recommend people daylight hours. But the time, it really depends on the indication, but head to toe helps with hair growth, helps with collagen production, helps with some called oral mucositis for patients who've had cancer and it causes like this, you know, you know, rash and you know raw tissue in their mouth can help with Hashimoto's can help with activating stem cells but mostly it's the musculoskeletal it helps lower inflammation in the joints and the muscles it helps with bringing blood flow to that territory 
And a lot of athletes will use it to recover faster. So if you recover faster, then you can go push harder again. Once or twice a day? Uh, it depends. I mean, you know, um, if it's an acute injury, probably twice a day. If it's just kind of maintenance, you know, daily, every other day. Well, I, I love red light therapy. I, I think it's great. I have two panels in my room. Um, I recommend it all the time. I even have a travel one. I, I feel better. And maybe it's placebo for the little one because it is so small, but it's it, it Yeah, see? Um, you just put it right up to my face. Dr. Mike, we have so much to talk about. I hate to even stop the episode because we're going to end up breaking this up into two episodes. And we're going to have you back on every three months or so, maybe even more. What would you leave the listener with if you were to say, protect your heart at all costs, 700,000 people die? Is it die of die. heart disease? 700,000 people. Americans die a year. <laughs> Americans die of heart disease. What would you tell somebody? That you don't have to be a statistic. You know, there are tests you can do that tells you, are you in that high-risk bucket? And even if you're high risk, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have an event. There's many lifestyle modifications you can do. There's many supplements. There's many medications that can help stabilize this plaque so that you can keep living your life the way you want to. You know, it goes back to circadian biology, which is free. Get outside, see some sunrises. Try to you know, be barefoot on the earth if you can. Get some negative electrons. Get the right testing to tell you how healthy is your endothelium. Get some of the non-invasive tests that tells you how fast your arteries are aging. And then work with somebody who can explain this to you. But it's definitely doable and it's definitely something that is important. I mean, if we had, you know, it's the number one, you know, pandemic, endemic for people, you know, cardiovascular disease, you know, twice as many people died of, you know, coronary disease during the past couple of years than the virus. So, you know, we closed down the world for the virus. What about cardiovascular disease? It's still ongoing. That many people keep dying from it. So tests don't guess and, you know, we'll figure this out for you. I love it. And don't use Listerine. Don't use Listerine. Yeah. Dr. Mike Twyman, thank you so much. I am so proud and privileged to not only call you a colleague and a friend. Thank you for coming on and for being such a big part of this conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only. <laughs>